0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that Jesus said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. The word of God for the people of God.
0: My name is Kevin Huddleston, and I serve as a deacon overseeing gospel communities here at Coram And this morning we continue in our series in the Gospel according to John. For those of you who haven't been with us as long, uh, John's gospel is kind of divided into two major sections, with a prologue at the beginning and an epilogue at the end, and this sort of pivoting scene in the middle, starting in chapter 11, which we haven't gotten to yet. So today's passage drops us right into that climactic tension at the end of that first major section. And every good story has moments like this one. If you've at all uh, seen westerns or you're into movies like that, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a protagonist of some kind, sometimes with some questionable morals, but a good guy nonetheless, right? And there's an antagonist, sometimes a big bad railroad company, a corrupt town sheriff. And then the whole time, these two parties are in conflict with one another. There's simmering tensions. There's these escalating skirmishes, all building towards some climactic showdown. All the best Westerns got it. Things like 310 to Yuma, True Grit, Unforgiven. They've got that set up because that's just what makes those stories great. Tombstone, though stands out among them all. It depicts Wyatt Earp and his brothers trying to settle down for a quiet life, and it just gets disrupted and destroyed by this gang of outlaw cowboys. There's skirmishes, there's standoffs, and they're all building toward that climactic showdown at the OK Corral, the shootout at the OK Corral. That's the climax of that tension that's been building the whole story. Similarly, up to this point in John, there's been this accumulation of conflict between Jesus and these Jews, going all the way back to chapter 5. So let's quickly remind ourselves of the conflicts so far. There was the accusation of Sabbath violation back in chapter 5, where Jesus healed the invalid at the pool. The Jews were even seeking to kill him at that moment because he was calling God his father. In chapter 6, in Capernaum, there was this resentment that was brewing toward Jesus as he referred to himself as this bread that came down from heaven. Isn't this Jesus whose father and mother we know? What's he talking about? Bread from heaven. He even went about talking about his flesh being bread, that if you ate it, you would have eternal life. That caused some dissension and disruption. And then back in Jerusalem in chapter seven at the Feast of the Booths, there was all this more dispute about Jesus and who he was. Crowds accused him of having a demon. Jewish authorities sought to arrest him. Chapter eight, there is the argument about Father Abraham, and then Jesus drops that bomb and he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And there it was the, the place that the Jews first picked up stones to kill him. Then Jesus has the audacity to heal on the Sabbath again in chapter 9, giving a man born blind sight. He's breaking the Sabbath, he's calling God his father, he's demonstrating unexplainable power. The conflict has simmered, the scene is now set. It's the Feast of Dedication, commonly known as Hanukkah. Jesus is in the temple teaching and preaching, and the antagonists have had enough. It's showdown time. Imagine being in this place with Jesus, in the temple, sitting there, listening to his teaching, earnestly trying to take in what he's saying, understand his words, and then suddenly in the corner of your eye, you see the Jews roll in, and you know it's about to go down. Wow, wow, wow. They gather around him for what's fixing to be a fat. And what challenge do they lay down? Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We've heard, we've seen, we're unconvinced, and you're still not being clear. So we ask, who are you, Jesus. But for us readers, we have to ask, do they really not know? Is it not clear to them to this point? I mean, after everything that's happened up to now, they are they serious? Or is there some other motive mixed in with their question? In this scene, in the second half of John 10, in this question from this group of Jews, there seems to be more to the question than just a question. So today, we're going to look at the problem with that question, the sufficiency of the answer, and the invitation to us, the hearer. So let's look first at the problem of the question, starting again in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him, said to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly.' Jesus answered them, "'I told you, and you do not believe.'" The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This question taken at face value, it's a fine question to ask. Who are you, Jesus? I mean, are you really the Christ? You might be asking the same question. You might be having the same sense. If you've seen all that you've seen and you're still unconvinced, if you had the chance to ask Jesus a question face to face, this very well might be the question that you would ask but it's not the content of the question that's the problem, it's the ones who are asking. What do we know about the Jews who have opposed Jesus so far? What's been their reception of him? Has it been all the warm and fuzzies? Has it been genuine excitement and joy? Nope. They've been full of doubt, resentment, and contempt. So the question here, knowing what we know about these Jews seems to be more rooted in skepticism and unbelief. The problem with the question is that it's designed to find him out. Think about courtroom drama, all right? What happens when the defendant accused of crime is put on the stand? Well, the prosecution is ready to rock, right? They line up these questions that are aimed at exposing the defendant to get them to disclose their guilt, to get them in that gotcha moment, right? If you've seen A Few Good Men, you know the scene I'm talking about, that moment when Jack Nicholson's character, he's getting grilled by Tom Cruise, the lawyer, the prosecutor, and Nicholson is just starting to get ragey. You need me on that wall, right, if you've seen the movie. And in this moment of raging contempt, he admits it. He says it, the smoking gun. There it is, your honor. That's all we need to hear. I rest my case. Well, this question from these Jews seems to be that kind of a gotcha question, aimed at getting that smoking gun, at finally getting an answer that will bury Jesus in his own words and justify their dismissal of him and his ministry. But look again at how Jesus responds. Verse 25. We've seen from John's narrative so far, there's really only two ways that people respond to Jesus, regardless of what he does or says. There's either reception or rejection. There's either belief or skepticism. And these Jews in particular seem to be rejecting Jesus and they want confirmation of their suspicions. They wanna be justified in their rejection of him. Part of the problem with the question Jesus tells us in verse 26 is that the ones that are asking this question are not of his sheep. We know from the sermon last week from Isaiah, if you were able to hear it, we know what it means that the sheep know their shepherd's voice. This image of shepherd and sheep, it's a lot like that of a parent and child. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife Abby and I were doing our normal Saturday routine of donuts and coffee with our kids. Yeah, you heard that right, every week, donuts, no shame, okay? Uh, (laughs) We were parked on a busy street, South 13th, if you've been on it, kind of crazy, all right? I'm unloading our two daughters from the car, and I get our three-year-old Greta out of the car first, I said, Greta, stay right here, kind of blocking traffic off a little bit. I knew if she stayed right there, she'd be fine. I'm going to take a second and lift up my other daughter out of the van, but the second I start to move away, what happened? She started to go and moved toward the front of the van. And all I did was I panicked and I said, Greta, stop, come back. I mean, she was like three feet away, I didn't need to yell, right? But I was panicked, she didn't listen. And sure enough, she froze, she came right back to my side. She could sense the panic in my voice, so she was a little frightened, she kinda started to tear up. But what happened in that moment? She heard my voice, she knew my voice, she trusted my voice. And she responded to my voice. Jesus is Israel's true shepherd. His sheep know his voice, and he's here to gather up the Father's flock. And if that is true, if Jesus is Israel's true shepherd, king that they've been waiting for, then we should, excel- we should expect some celebration right here, right? Jesus is in the temple during Hanukkah, which in itself was a celebration of the temple being liberated from foreign oppressors. Jesus is in Israel while it's under occupation from Rome, an oppressing force. So finally, the Lord's true shepherd, the real heir to David's throne, is here. He's here to set the people free and to establish God's rule. They asked, who are you? Jesus, and Jesus has answered them, but do they respond with reception and rejoicing? Nope. Verse 31, a second time they seek, they seek to stone him. They want to kill him. Because, in their view, Jesus has just committed blasphemy, and broken Jewish law, and made himself equal with God. Their response is one of rejection. So, the problem, the question, It's not really a question. Now let's look secondly at the sufficiency of the answer. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Notice the answer Jesus gives to their question, It's to point to his works. Verse 25, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Verse 37 and 38, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Even though you do believe me, though, believe the works. So what works has John accounted for so far in the narrative? Well, he turned, Jesus turned water into wine, cleansed the temple back in chapter 2. He healed the official son. He healed a long-term paralytic at the pool. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He healed a man born blind. And these are just the works that John has actually described to us. There's plenty more works, he says later in his narrative, that he hasn't actually written down. Because There's not enough space on pages to fill books that would account for all the works that Jesus has done. So Jesus is essentially saying, you ask who I am, but my works speak for themselves. You might not buy my words. You can view me with skepticism, disdain, and contempt, but you cannot get around my works. D.A. Carson explains this response from Jesus this way. By asking which of the many great miracles from the Father have earned there the Jews' wrath, Jesus is simultaneously claiming that all he has done has been the work of God Himself, attesting to the truth that He is in the Father, and the Father that He and the Father are one, and demanding that his accusers think through his life. Is there not something incongruous about religion that objects to the healing of long-term paralytics and the curing of someone born blind? But the Jews cannot see their way to thinking through the implications of Jesus' works. They could always explain them away, one way or another. The immovable point of offense lies in what Jesus says. From their perspective, he has spoken blasphemy. Jesus, a mere mortal, claims to be literally makes himself God, lining himself up on the other side of the unbridgeable chasm that separates the transcendent infinite creator from his finite and fallen creatures. For the reader, the irony is palpable. Jesus has not made himself God. He is himself the eternal word, the word that was with God and was God. He is the unique son, utterly obedient to his father in doing everything the father does. The word became flesh. The son became a man. Jesus's words and works provide more than enough to convince the Jews and to us, the hearers, that Jesus was the set-apart, sent Son of God. Carson again says this, for those with eyes to see, so deft had been Jesus' self-references, his use of the Old Testament, his handling of titles, his discussions of the relations between God and himself that he has virtually pointed himself out as the Messiah. Jesus is saying to the Jews, you shouldn't be bothered by my words and statements. You should be bothered by your own unwillingness to believe. And then he has the audacity to offer them a way out of believing. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's an amazing statement from Jesus, right? You have the freedom to not believe. But Jesus caveats his get-out-of-believing free card with a stipulation. Whose works am I doing? If these works are from above, if they are from God and evidence that the Father is at work in the world, then it should be clear who I am. And even if you can't accept me, accept the works. And this gets us to the third point, the invitation to the hear. The Jews ask, who are you, Jesus? And Jesus', re- Jesus response is simply to point to his works. Jesus' invitation is to, to us this morning, to hear, to all who read, is to see the works, believe the works, behold the works, and understand that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. The invitation is to believe in him, wholly and fully. In other words, the only reason you shouldn't believe is if he's not doing the works of the Father. Now, I understand there might be hang-ups for some of you. I know there are stories in this room, people who have been hurt by the church, by pastors, leaders, other Christians. You might be carrying wounds and experiences that have shaped you and shaped you in not the right kind of way, and those are hard to let go of. Those are hard to shake And they've made you question Jesus, who he is, and what he's about. You can't just forget those experiences and move on, and nor should you. But should those experiences really cause you to dismiss Jesus himself? What if instead, what if you consider Jesus just on his resume? just the facts, just his works. That's what he's inviting you to do this morning, to consider his works and judge him according to those, strictly those, and whether or not they demonstrate his authority and testify to his authenticity. You might not realize this, but we do this all the time in everyday life without even realizing it. Many of you in this room have been to a doctor before. Some of you have had surgeries performed even. Well, let me ask you this. On what basis do you trust or reject a doctor? When deciding who should perform your surgery, what do you go on? What weighs most heavy in your decision-making process? Is it your experience in their office, with their staff and their other patients? Is it your experience of their nurse practitioner or physician's assistant? Is it even the doctor's bedside manner? I hope not. I mean, there's doctors in the room. So, guys, I love you. Women, I love you. You're all wonderful professions, professionals. Uh, but what really counts? The track record, right? Their previous outcomes. How good are they at their job of diagnosing and treating? How good are they at removing tumors or fusing bones. That's what matters most. You may have had a terrible experience with their their secretary in their office or even the doctor themselves. but at the end of the day, if they are the best at what they do and they offer you the greatest hope of improving your health or even surviving, you trust them. You submit your life to them based on their works and what they've done. How about a different example? How do you choose your car mechanic? Is it based on the quality of their office or the cleanliness of their garage? Probably not. I mean, those are nice things, right? You like a clean garage to have a car to work on. But you ask the question, can they fix the car? Have they demonstrated worthwhile competence to actually repair vehicles that are like mine and also not totally overcharge me in the process, right? Can they fix my car and do I trust them? We do this all the time with doctors, with mechanics, and the like. We evaluate objective truths, the evidence, the works, and we put our trust in those things. Not how we feel about those things, but just about the facts, strictly those. If then we can trust a person based on their track record, how much more can we trust, believe, and follow Jesus knowing what we know? He's turned water into wine. He's walked on water. He's fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. He's given sight to a man that was born blind. That's the evidence, and that's not all. Standing here in 2021, knowing what we know now, we've got the rest of the New Testament, right? There's even greater works to come. Jesus' track record, Jesus' works include the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the establishment of a movement of Jesus' followers, the testimony of the church through hundreds, thousands of years. I mean, what more do you need? Jesus is inviting you this morning to look at his works, to evaluate his works, and to believe him, trust him, and follow him based on those works. You're invited to hear his voice, shepherd and follow him as a sheep. So to you this morning who have done this, if you've trusted in Jesus and are following him, I hope you see the good news here. On those days when you can't see God's hand, when his goodness feels more past than present, when your soul is dry and you can't seem to sense him at work in your life. You might be tempted in that moment to trust in your own strength of your faith, to just try to muster it up and put in a smile and continue on. Don't do that. Don't trust the strength of your own faith. It's going to ebb and flow. Look at the works. Look at the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. Trust his works. Behold the works and what they point to. The Father's love, the Father's presence, the Father's grip on you. Let your faith rest there in the faithfulness of your good shepherd that has laid his life down for you to keep you. Jesus's words should be a great comfort to you. Verse 27 again. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we've considered the problem with that question, the sufficiency of the answer, and the invitation to us, the hearers. And we conclude by coming back to where we started, Who are you, Jesus? This is the question on every one of our minds and hearts. And the text this morning helps us to see that we can ask that question in one of two ways, as either a sheep or a skeptic. John doesn't leave room for a middle option. He's built the case on who Jesus is by showing us Jesus' works. This gospel and the scriptures sufficiently answer the question, who is Jesus? He's the set-apart, sent Son of God. Look, I can tell you firsthand what it's like to be one of the Jews in this story asking this question, who are you, Jesus, in a way that's aimed at exposing Jesus and finding him out. I grew up in the church. Uh, my parents were wonderful. They were faithful. They wanted us to, be, uh, to grow up, my brothers and I, knowing God and being formed by the practices of the church. So Sunday morning worship and Wednesday night You know, CCD classes and uh, summer camps were all normal for us, but my attitude through middle school and high school and eventually off to college as I grew up continued to become increasingly skeptical and standoffish toward the church and its truth claims. Who are we to say who God is anyway? I mean, can we actually believe this thing? It was written by guys who are totally corrupt and trying to manipulate us for their own ends and, and means. Am I right? It's probably full of errors. I mean, Jesus is God's son, are we serious here, people? Virgin birth, resurrection, it sounds like a bunch of fairy tales. It doesn't really seem to hold up to my experience of life and my own logic and rationale. These are the kinds of questions that were drumming around, the kind of angst that I was carrying around as I was growing up, that I never seemed to find or never really wanted to find answers to. And as time went along, I became more resistant and eventually just outright hostile towards the church and towards Christians in general. I was quick to cast a stone, especially if I sensed that somebody was really sure in their belief, wanted to find reasons I could call them a hypocrite. I was skeptical, cynical, disillusioned, and completely full of doubt. Perhaps you were like me, how I was. Asking questions with a heart aimed at finding him out. Question after question after question, putting Jesus on the stand, measuring his words and works against your own logic, against your own rationale, and against your own life experience. Don't you see the invitation this morning? You are invited to reconsider your motive for your questions. To reconsider your skepticism, your resistance, even your outright rejection of Jesus, and instead come across the Jordan. Look at how this scene ends. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and they believed in him there. Jesus goes down to the river, he retreats across the Jordan, and he readies himself for one more work that will demonstrate his power and authority and authenticity. He foreshadowed it in John chapter 5 when he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Calling the dead back to life. A work unlike anything that he's accomplished yet and unlike anything that has been seen before. Look, I know these works, this testimony It's hard to believe, I know that, because for the better part of 20 years of my life, I didn't believe them myself. So how does God take a resistant skeptic and turn him into a rejoicing sheep? Friends, I'm standing here today as evidence that God can and does turn skeptics into sheep. Remember how I described my resistant self, full of doubt, disillusioned? Well, what changed from then to now? Well, in the midst of all my doubts, all of my casting stones, what was left was simply more questions and no real answers. Anytime I seemed to establish some sense of purpose, something to really cling to, something to base my life upon that would give my life meaning and purpose, seemed like the sands would just shift again right beneath my feet. So I'd go on continuing to poke holes in the next thing as I tried to figure out answers to questions that I never seemed to get to the bottom of. No matter how many ideas or endeavors or people that I tried to give myself to to give my life meaning just left me wanting more, nothing would ever satisfy. To put simply, I reached the end of myself. But God was rich in mercy toward me He orchestrated my life to bring me into community with his people, some of you in this room. I began to interact with his word in community. And instead of hearing with a dull, resistant heart like I had before, I heard with a heart that was needy and weak. I had sought answers and I had found no answers. So I was ready to listen. And what I heard, what I saw, was God building his case before my eyes of who he was and what he had done. He was saying through his people, some of you in this room, through his word and through his son, Kevin, I see you, I made you, I know you, and I love you. You've sought life and all these other things, and it's left you feeling empty, not full but here's who I am and here's what I offer. I offer life and life abundant. Instead of trying to find Jesus out, I had been found by him. The good news, friends, is that this story is not complete. The gathering of the father's sheep by the good shepherd is not yet done. In fact, even this morning, the story continues. God the Father is in the Son, inviting you to be found by him and in him. So come across the Jordan. Would you come behold the works of God? Come behold the person of Jesus to whom the scriptures have pointed to. Come see for yourself. Come across the Jordan. Believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, and identify with Jesus the good shepherd who lays down his life for his people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know uh, in this room there are many stories. There are many hearts. There are many minds. And we know that you see them all and know them all because you made them all. So, Father, we ask this morning for a great deal of comfort to those who need it. We confess to you that our minds and hearts are often skeptical, cynical, and full of doubt. God, we want to carve out some third way, some middle ground where we can kind of believe, but not really. And, Lord, we confess that to you. We bring that to you this morning. But we also acknowledge that we are living in a fallen world and that we are sinners. We sin against each other, even and especially people in the church, people that would call themselves followers of you. We hurt each other. We wound each other. But Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd and the great healer of all things. You died for sick people and sinners, not for healthy. We know that Jesus, you are at work redeeming and calling people to yourself. So this morning, we pray that we would hear your voice and follow you. For those that are in this room that are skeptical and full of doubt, pray that you would be patient. Pray that you would reveal yourself to them in small ways and in big ways. Help to demonstrate your power and your love. And for those in this room that are, uh, would say that they are sheep, who have been following you with their life, pray that there would just be a great comfort this morning that, Jesus, uh, we know your voice, we hear you, and we follow you. And that's not because of some work that we have done, but it's because of your grace and your mercy toward us that you call us out of darkness and into marvelous light. So we look to you this morning, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we put our great hope in you, shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep. Pray these things in your name. Amen.